church. Uh, if you are just joining us today, we've been studying the Old Testament book of Exodus since September, but during these four weeks of Advent, we're looking at the themes of hope, peace, joy, and love in the second half of Exodus, which may seem odd, but there's some really wonderful tie-ins, and I know it's helped me look uh, a lot differently at Exodus uh, in light of this year. Uh, but now we're in December, and Christmas anticipation is all the rage. Does anybody out there have their tree up yet? Okay, yeah, I see those hands, all right, everybody, you, the, the decorating people out there. Some of us love to decorate for Christmas. It brings festive cheer to our lives. Now, one of the most decorated places on the face of the earth, I think, during Christmas um, is Disneyland. Okay, if you've, has anybody ever been to Disneyland or Disney World during Christmas? Right? It, it is quite spectacular. Right? Light shows, there's, there's uh, you know, Mickey and Minnie dressed as Mr. and Mrs. Claus, Santa. Uh, it, it's just, it's glorious. Now... My wife loves Disneyland, and a few years ago when we were first married, she took me to Disneyland during Christmas, and so I got to experience it in all its glory. Uh, But as the day went on during our time there, um, I realized something else about Disneyland during Christmas. Uh, It's crowded. (laughs) I'm talking about wall-to-wall crowds, right? Long lines, people shoving you as you're trying to get through tight pathways. Of course, this is all before covid Uh, But, you know, just crowds all over the place. The decorations, yes, were awe-inspiring, but the crowds just took the wind out of my sails a little bit as my Christmas joy quickly turned to anger. The clouds made me claustrophobic, the lines made my back and my knees hurt, and I wasn't even that old at the time. And on top of that, my family insisted insisted that I stay at the park until 1 a.m. We had to be committed, they said. That's what commitment looks like. And so I realized something I already knew about myself during that trip, and that was this. I, I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait. I, I get impatient, and when I'm tired and I'm boxed in, I'm not a nice person. The decorations didn't matter if I couldn't see them, and the rides were just not as much fun if I had to wait 90 minutes online to get on them. Can anybody relate? 
Does waiting make you a different person? See, people wait all year for Christmas, but it's, it's ironic that Christmas is actually one of the most impatient times of the year. You give looks of disgust when you're on long checkout lines. You give angry phone calls to Amazon or whoever when you're waiting for a package that's too late, which is, which is probably a lot recently. Maybe waiting doesn't make us different people. Maybe waiting actually reveals the person we truly are. And so the better question actually should be, what will you wait for? You see, yes, I didn't like waiting in line at Disneyland for 90 minutes for a ride, but my wife did. And she didn't understand why I wasn't like taking in this glorious experience like she was. But there's other things that I'll wait for that she won't. Because what we wait for, I think, reveals what we love. And that's the lesson of Exodus chapter 32, where we find ourselves this morning. We're with the people of Israel again, waiting. Now remember, we've been wandering in the wilderness for, you know, for several chapters with the people of Israel, and now they're camped at the base of Mount Sinai, while Moses is up on the top of the mountain talking to God, getting the law, getting the blueprint for the tabernacle. He's been gone for over a month. And Israel is wondering, what is going on? Where is Moses? And this time, after all the waiting they've had in the past, this time they decide to take matters into their own hands. Look at what it says in Exodus 32.1. It says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what has happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. Now, if I put this in Disneyland language, Israel has been waiting online at Space Mountain for two hours, and things are getting restless. So they gather a crowd around Aaron, the guy who's in charge, and they start lodging complaints to customer service. They're like, Aaron, hey, we've been waiting too long. Like, where is Moses? Is he coming back? Okay, hey, Moses, Aaron, I'm not sure we can trust God because he's kind of left us alone here. He's ignoring us. Mo, Aaron, you know, Moses is gone. It's time to move on. We need some better gods. And the rest of Exodus 32 flows from this moment. Israel will not wait for Moses, and by extension, they will not trust God. What will you wait for? See, every year we remember the Advent season, and Advent is in many ways about waiting. And the call to wait is something we connect with because as 21st century Americans who are used to high-speed internet, we don't wait well. And some of us get frustrated, maybe you're even frustrated right now, because Jesus hasn't answered your prayers in the time or the way you thought he should this year, and now it's December, and you're ready to take matters into your own hands. Because what does waiting do to us physically and psychologically? Right? It's a pressure cooker. When we wait, we get anxious. You know, we're not at peace. When we, when we wait, we're uncertain. We would rather have a plan for what's coming next. And when we wait, we get agitated. We're irritated. We, 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 we snap at people. We, come, we become physically uncomfortable. Waiting reveals what's inside of us. And that could take us in one of two directions. First, we could, it could lead to refinement. Right, where God uses the waiting to actually build our character and trust in him, or it can lead to regret, which is where we, we reject God, we take matters into our own hands, we compromise because we don't follow his ways. And that's where Israel is in Exodus 32. Will they wait for God or will they move on without him? And maybe, 
Maybe that is where some of us are at this morning. We're tired of waiting for God to come through. We don't have peace, and we're ready to move on. It's 1 a.m. in Disneyland. We're cold, our back and our knees are hurting, and we can't wait anymore. But waiting shows us what's in our hearts if we truly have peace. And so there's three scenes in Exodus 32 that show what God does in the waiting. And these are the lessons I think we take away. First, he's going to show us that waiting reveals our worship. Second, impatience leads to war. And then finally, peace comes through the sword. And I'll explain that one when we get there. But before we do, let's, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord for our time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, this morning. Thank you for my friends who are here uh, watching, in attendance, listening later on, Lord. I pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts for what you're going to show us in this uh, passage this morning, Lord. Teach us what it means to wait well. Teach us that peace comes through you, Lord Jesus, who sacrificed himself for us. And you are the greatest gift that we could have ever received this Christmas season. Prepare our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, so worship. Worship, worship. We all worship something or someone. And if you want to know what you worship, functionally, you have to think about where you spend your money, where you give your time, what dominates your thoughts. Because the thing that captures your heart, that is what you really worship. And what I find really interesting is that waiting reveals what you and I worship. Because either you will wait longer for the thing you love, or you will wait, your waiting will make you frustrated and something else will capture your attention. In the waiting process, worship is revealed. Now, in Exodus 32, the people of Israel had a choice. They could wait longer to hear from God, or they could move on. And their actions in this waiting period revealed something else had captured their worship. Look at verse 2. So it goes on. It says, Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Okay, now remember in verse 1, which we just read, uh, we learn that Aaron is surrounded by a crowd. Right? They made it clear they were tired of waiting and they wanted a new God to worship. The social pressure is mounting. Aaron's breaking a sweat and he's wondering, all right, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And in verse 2, we learn that Aaron, the high priest, the spiritual leader of these people, comes up with a plan. He gives into the pressure. He says, uh, bring me the gold earrings. Now, what's particularly devastating about this scene is what Israel passes up. Last week, we looked at the blueprint for the tabernacle. Pastor Dave walked through that passage in in masterful fashion. We learned about God's house. It gave us a glimpse of what it meant for God to be with us. And the last week of the series, we're going to see how the tabernacle is actually built, culminating with the Shekinah glory coming down and being with God's people. And what's, what's interesting about this, the end of Exodus here, is that the blueprint for the tabernacle and the actual building of the tabernacle in between is sandwiched an account of rebellion, because our waiting reveals our worship. And I want to remind you also what God has done for Israel at Mount Sinai. He's given them two gifts. First, he's offered the gift of the law to his people, to guide and protect his covenant people. In Exodus 20, he writes down the Ten Commandments that will serve as his covenant with his people. And then secondly, God provides the gift of his presence. That is what the tabernacle is all about, God's dwelling among his people. Now, Christmas is a gift-giving time. 
But sometimes we don't appreciate what we've been given. We take it for granted. And Israel missed the glorious gifts of God here. The waiting made them frustrated, and so they found another object of worship. And this was true even of their leaders. Now, I want you to notice something here about Aaron, because Aaron, the high priest who was leading Israel while Moses was gone, uh, remember what he does here. Remember that later in the story, because in verse 1, we hear the people come to him and say, make us some gods. And Aaron decides to have them bring the gold for the gold earrings. And then verses 3 and 4 make it clear that Aaron is continually complicit in this action. Look at what it says. It says, all the people took the gold rings, they listened to him, from their ears, brought them to Aaron. Aaron took the gold, he melted it down, molded it into the shape of a calf. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, oh, Israel, oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, what I want you to see is that Aaron didn't just come up with the idea to do this. He actually made the golden calf, which is a violation, he knew, of the first two commandments. And as we're going to see later, it will provoke a strong response from God. Why? Well, let me offer some cultural background here because um, idolatry, which is the worship of false gods, was a common practice in the ancient Near East. The surrounding cultures... All had their gods they worshipped, they bowed down to, they made statues to represent them. And over and over again in Scripture, God reveals himself so that people will know that he is the one true God, not these false gods. That was the point of the signs in Exodus chapter 4. So if Israel, the people whom God has chosen, decided to worship another god, the charge was nothing short of adultery. Right? They cheated on Yahweh God here. And then second, this is a really famous story. In fact, if you don't know much about Exodus and you're listening here, you probably have heard about the golden calf and the story and all that, and you get the cultural references. But have you ever wondered why they made a golden calf? Well, it's actually more likely the statue they made resembled a young bull. And that's significant because it would have been familiar to the Israelites. In Egypt, a vigorous young bull was an appropriate way to represent a powerful God. And so them making this idol, worshiping it, is a potent reminder that just because they have been taken out of Egypt, it does not mean Egypt has gotten out of them. The fact that Israel wanted to make these gods, plural, and then the creation of the bull image showed that they were still wedded to the false religions of the Egyptians. And this, is, this was even though they saw God rescue them. Now, Israel probably did this because Moses' absence represented God's absence. Where was he? And then, again, we all worship something. And typically, our worship is captured by something that meets a a felt need. And, And church, we act like Israel, too. And we have to ask ourselves, what are our golden calves? And if you want to know, you have to ask yourself, what felt needs am I trying to meet apart from God? What are the idols of the culture that that capture my felt needs. Like, for example, if we desire intimacy and connection, relationships can become idolatrous. Or if we desire to provide for our family in a certain way, career can very much become an idol. Or technology, uh, smartphones, social media, they can make us feel significant when we're lonely. What are your golden calves? So, 
once we start to worship the golden calves, the result is we devote our time and our treasure to these pursuits, which is especially true at Christmas, because sometimes we can be so focused on the secular materialistic themes of Christmas that we miss what it's all about. We might think, well, if I buy more stuff, it's going to make me feel better, but it doesn't give you peace because later on the credit card debt brings anxiety. Idols thrive on our felt needs, and they seek to replace the one true God who alone gives peace. Now, some, somebody listening might push back and they say, well, Pastor Bob, I don't do that. Right? I always give. I, I do this for benevolent reasons. And if that's you, you might be doing exactly what Aaron did. Look at verse 5. The story continues. It says, Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. And then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. Now notice, notice again, several things here about verse 5. Aaron responded to the people's excitement by what? He built an altar so the people could sacrifice to these false gods. And then he announced there's going to be a festival, which was a, a day of worship and feasting. Again, this is all Aaron's idea. The idol has overtaken their hearts so much that they made themselves believe this bull was an extension of Yahweh. These are your gods. In other words, they justified their actions. And so do we. Commentator D.K. Stewart is really helpful, and he, he notes what is happening in the scene. Look at what he says. He says, the people were, in other words, so wedded to their old culture that they could manage to justify in their minds its false religion, even to the point of the type of animals used to represent a god. Even though that religion had been proven false over and over again by Yahweh's mighty acts on their behalf right up to the present time. Old habits and ways of thinking die hard. In times of stress, people often revert to them even though they are useless and destructive. Such are the limits of reliance on human wisdom in a fallen world. Because you might be asking yourself, well, how could Israel do this? And the answer is, we always justify our actions in our minds. And even though God told them not to do this, they thought, well... It's honoring to Yahweh. It's honoring to God. This is an example of syncretism, which is the wedding together of two different systems of belief that are incompatible. The Egyptian gods are not the same as Yahweh God. And then look at where it leads in verse 6. It says, The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. And after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. They've lost it. They've missed everything. See, this scene so clearly contrasts last week's message on the tabernacle that, because that's where worship was supposed to take place. That was where they were set apart. They're supposed to be the people of God who's chosen for him, and they're disobeying everything God commanded. They are sacrificing to a false god. And that word revelry meant they were singing and dancing with abandon. This was a crazy, crazy celebration they were having here. How did this happen? The waiting process reveals our worship. We will wait longer or we will move on. Israel didn't want to wait, and they found an idol that met their felt need, and then they justified their actions. Now, in the modern church, I think we're particularly susceptible to this uh, type of thing. And I want to give you an example of a cultural message that can lead us here. So uh, this week I was, I was listening to a commentary on a New York Times article 
Uh, they ran a story about a woman named Carissa Schumacher. Uh, the article tells us that she is a medium, meaning she receives messages from dead people. And she is so popular that she is booked for appointments months and months and months in advance. And she charges $1,100 an hour. <clears throat> now, apparently being a medium is pretty lucrative. What Car- why Carissa is unique, it, it, what makes her unique is the fact that she makes the astonishing claim that she, as the medium, can channel Yeshua. And if you don't know that, that's the Old Testament name for Jesus. So, yeah, she's claiming to be channeling Jesus Christ. Now, it turns out that Carissa is so, so popular that even well-known Hollywood actresses will, will go and see her. In fact, Jennifer Aniston of Friends fame is quoted in the article, and what she says is really what I want you to digest. So Jennifer Aniston says this about Carissa. She says, uh, the, Yeshua, the Yeshua channeling thing is kind of way out there, and, and you know, for some people. It's going to be insane, this idea of channeling Jesus, but it's really more about the message that she's tapped into. Everything she's communicated to me just resonates. So if I could summarize, Carissa Schumacher is a medium who claims to be talking for Jesus Christ, and if you pay over $1,000 an hour, you can talk to Jesus too. (laughs) And then Jennifer Aniston says... That's a little weird, but it just resonates. Now, this is emotional language, and that's what I want you to see. We live in a culture where emotional resonance matters more than what is true. I mean, Jennifer Aniston basically says here that this woman was insane for saying she channeled Jesus, but then she said, well, it resonates with me. The point is this, church. We must be careful that our felt needs don't lead us to worship false gods that run contrary to the truth about Jesus Christ. Because felt needs breed instant gratification. We don't want to wait. Because our waiting reveals our worship. Now, this was not the only time that Israel had to wait. Uh, Before the New Testament came into place, there was 400 years of silence God did not speak, there were no prophets, they were waiting and waiting and waiting for Messiah to come. And then in Luke's account, in chapter 2, verse 14, in the Christmas story that we read every year, the angels appear to the shepherds in the field, and what do they say? They say, glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Now notice here that peace is prominent. Because even in modern times, people view Christmas as a peaceful time. But I want you to see something about this. Uh, Peace only comes truly when one, God is worshipped, and two, God is pleased. How is God pleased? When we worship him and when we obey him. And Israel was doing neither in Exodus 32. In fact, they rejected the gift of the law. And they lost the gift of his presence for a time. They resemble what is happening in another Christmas account. At the beginning of John's gospel, we read that Jesus, the word, the logos, came to earth and was a light in the darkness. This is the gift of the incarnation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But then we read in John chapter 3, verse 19, people loved the darkness more than the light. People loved the darkness more than the light. In other words, we are all drawn to the golden calf. And we start dancing around it 
without even knowing what happened. And we say, how do we get here? Why? Because how we respond to the weight will reveal if we love the darkness or the light. And so this Advent season, ask yourself, what are my golden calves? Because those golden calves will not bring you peace. What we wait for reveals our worship. But there's consequences when we don't learn to wait, and that's our second point in the narrative today. Impatience leads to war. Impatience leads to war. Now, the golden calf and the crazy celebration is happening at the foot of Mount Sinai, and then in verse 7, we're transported to a completely different scene at the top of the mountain. Moses is there with God, and God clues him in on what's happening down on the ground. Look at God's reaction to the false worship. Verse 7, the Lord told Moses, quick, go down to the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Like something's going on down there, Moses. You've got to go down and do something about it. But you also see God's concern for his people because he knows what disobedience means. So God's also sad. He says in verse 8, How quickly they, my people, have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. And that's an indictment on all of us. Because we've been seeing this over and over again since Israel left the Red Sea, since they've been in the wilderness. Israel forgets what God did for them. God sees what happened. He recounts these actions to Moses. And again, these actions are grounded in the reality of Exodus 32.1. Israel was impatient. God had not acted quickly enough. And when impatience takes over, it starts a chain reaction in our hearts. First, impatience leads to disobedience. Why? Because when we're impatient, we are only thinking of ourselves. You see, when I'm impatient with my wife, it is because she did not do something I wanted. When I'm impatient with my children, it's because they are interrupting my plans. And when I'm impatient with God, it means I don't trust. He knows what he is doing. And so we run to other gods for satisfaction and meet our needs. And church, this is what the Bible calls sin. Right? Sin is disobedience. Sin is serious. And we see this in God's reaction in verse 9. It says, Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone, he says to Moses, so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Now verse 9 shines a mirror on my heart. Stubborn. Rebellious. Is that you? It's all of us. The phrase, I have seen these people, is actually better translated, I am fully aware of what this people is like. See, friends, some of us think we can, we can hide our stubborn, rebellious hearts from God, but we can't. We can't. He is fully aware of us. He knows all about us inside and out. He sees our sin and knows our impatience, and he is broken because he does not have our hearts. His heart is devastated because he knows he must punish sin. What does God say in verse 10? He says, my fierce anger is going to blaze against them. And that leads to the second part of the chain reaction. Disobedience leads to punishment. In other words, what God is saying right here is this is war. And in a war, I'd rather be on God's side than not. 
But we don't do that because we're so easily convinced otherwise. Our impatience leads to sin. And the reason we don't have peace is because we're at war with God if we don't know him. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 5. Now, what's interesting about verses 9 and 10 is that God is not actually commanding Moses to leave him alone. The force of the phrase is actually more of an invitation to be challenged. So what God is saying in verse 9 and 10 is this, Moses, I will act unless you intervene. Moses, unless you step in and mediate for your people, there will be war. Impatience leads to war. And so Moses steps in, verse 11. It says, but Moses tried to pacify the Lord his God. Oh, Lord, he said, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such great power and such a strong hand. <laughs> now, I love that phrase there. Moses tried to pacify God, which is intriguing to me, not because Moses has the power uh, over God, but because it shows just how angry God was here. So if you read the next few verses, I'll summarize. Moses does the best he can to make an appeal. He makes three appeals. First, he says, God, if you destroy Israel, it will nullify your demonstration of power when you save them. Why would you do that? Second, he says, don't give the Egyptians the satisfaction. They wanted to wipe out Israel, and now you're going to be doing their bidding. But then finally, he appeals. He says, God, Lord, you are a God who keeps, keeps your promises. You promise to save your people. Please relent. Now, if you just read Exodus chapter 32, and that was the only chapter in the Bible you read, what would be your takeaway? I mean, there's a lot that happens here, but this scene with God and Moses is key. It is crucial because it points ahead to the very message of Christmas and the gospel itself. We need a mediator. And so Moses is stepping in, mediating here, making an appeal for his people. He says to God, yes, Israel's impatience led to disobedience. Yes, that disobedience requires punishment. But, but, Lord, keep your promises. You are a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Despite our disobedience, Lord, would you offer us grace? Would you offer us grace? Because if impatience leads to disobedience and then punishment comes, the final link of our need is grace. The final verse of the section hints at this reality that we all need. It says this. It says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he has spoken of bringing on his people. Impatience leads to war and we need grace. And people who are gracious are peaceful people. This is what the message of Advent is about. We are waiting for the one who will come to be the better mediator than Moses. We are waiting for the one who can satisfy the just wrath of God, who can give us grace. And the Christ child is that gift. His grace gives us peace so that we can have grace for others. Because people who've experienced grace know their sin and they know that God has relented and offered forgiveness. And so we give grace to others. Are you a gracious person? And then secondly, we need grace for ourselves. Because if Exodus 32 shows us anything, it's how unworthy we are. How prone we are to worship other gods. We fail, admit it, confess it, and then run back to the God who forgives. People who know grace are patient people. And that stops the war. 
But sin is serious, and sin must be punished, and that gets us to the final point, and that is peace comes through the sword. Peace comes through the sword. Now, the last section here is actually the longest of the narrative, so I'm going to summarize quite a bit for time's sake. Um, It's also got some uncomfortable scenes in it, because what happens here basically is after talking with God, Moses makes his way down the mountain with Joshua, and he and Joshua are coming down the mountain, they're approaching the camp, and they start to hear some noises from the camp. Moses is bringing the Ten Commandments, those big heavy tablets, with him, ready to show the people, and this is what verse 17 says. It says, when Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below them, he exclaimed to Moses, it sounds like war in the camp. But Moses replied, no, no, it does not, it is not a shout of victory, nor the wailing of defeat, I hear the sound of celebration. Now put yourself in this scene. Uh, Moses is carrying, again, these heavy, heavy tablets. Uh, They're hiking down the mountain, and all of a sudden, he's carrying these tablets with sandals on or whatever. Um, He hears this noise. It's getting louder. Joshua's first thought when he hears the noise is what? There is war in the camp. Now what type of sound would you have to hear to think that? It's got to be loud. It's got to be chaotic. Again, commentator D.K. Stewart is really helpful in bringing out what's going on here. This is what he writes. He says, when Joshua and Moses, what they heard was probably a mixture of sounds from such things as drunken singing, wild dancing, men shouting as they chased women, and women screaming as they were being chased. People fighting over food and drink, women fighting over men, and men fighting over women, and the sort of shrieking that pagans thought appropriate to rousing the gods. Now, when you put it like that, it sounds a whole lot like an out-of-control college frat party where the police are about to show up. And again, it all goes back to verse 1. Moses has been gone too long, we're tired of waiting, and we're going to find better gods, they said. And now this is where it's led them. Drunken singing, wild dancing, sexual debauchery, and this is the chosen people of God. This right here is the party of the raging bull. And notice Moses' response. What does he say? He says, I hear the sound of celebration. And this is the first of several lessons that we, we learn in this scene. Uh, first, you have to be careful what you, what you celebrate. Be careful what you celebrate because often we celebrate things that are not of God and it never leads anywhere good. I mean, look at Israel's example here. They are celebrating this false God and what does it get them? It gets them drunk, which leads to bad judgment, infighting, relational discord, worse, a loss of the presence of God. Because when we don't honor God, it's a reminder that the covenant was broken. Look at verse 19. It says, when they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. And he threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. Now, I want you to see how devastating this scene is. Now, Moses is coming around the mountain. It's the first time he's seeing his people in over a month, and he's got the first of two gifts. He's got the law that he's going to give to the people. These tablets he was carrying were literally written by God. He wrote them for his people. And what does Moses see? He sees that the people of God have totally forgotten him. They found a better God. 
Now, if I put this in relational terms, just imagine you're dating somebody, you're married to somebody, you really like them, you love them, you've spent so much time with them and you're ready to take that relationship to the next level, but for some reason you haven't been there in a while, you haven't been there in a month, you come home to find them showing affection to someone else, totally forgetting about you. Even worse, imagine your spouse is cheating on you. What is the emotion in your heart? It says, Moses burned with anger. Because in that moment, he knew God's heart. And then he smashes the tablet, which is a type of love letter that God is giving to his people. It symbolizes the covenant being broken. Why did this happen? All because Israel couldn't wait. Well, Moses is having none of this, and you know he's about to take some action here. Sin is, is in the camp. Atonement must be made. Peace comes through the sword. So what he does, and I'm going to summarize here, he destroys the golden bowl. He bur- it says he burns it, he grinded it, and he scattered it, which is a common practice when somebody wanted to totally destroy an idol. And then what Moses does is he actually takes the remains of the idol, he puts it in the water supply for the Israelites, and he has them drink it, which is meant to show, symbolically, when it left their bodies, it symbolizes that all idols are, I think you get the point. (laughs) Moses is having a coming to Jesus meeting here. He's cleaning house, and then he turns to Aaron. Remember Aaron? Turns to Aaron, it says, finally, he turned to Aaron, and he demanded, what did these people do to you to make you bring such a terrible sin upon them? And how does Aaron respond? Remember I said at the beginning, I made a big deal about saying that it was Aaron's idea, Aaron built the altar, Aaron built the calf. Well, when confronted by Moses, he leaves all those details out. He puts all the blame on the people. Essentially, he says, they made me do it, Moses. And he plays that his role. Look at verse 24. He says, so I told them, whoever had gold jewelry, well, they could take it off. And when they brought it to me, I just simply threw it on the fire and out came this calf. It's my favorite part of the narrative, right? Aaron's caught. He says, Moses, I was just doing what they told me. And then poof, a calf. Fails to mention how he crafted it. How he started this whole worship, you know, loud festival that's going on right now. And he says here, essentially, wasn't me. I tried to tell them, but they were having none of it. And this is the second lesson in this scene. If you want to make peace, don't make excuses. Because Aaron is the king of excuses here. And that's the worst thing you can do, right? Have you ever tried to offer a qualified apology? And how did that go for you? Peace and forgiveness only come when there is confession. Because look at where Aaron's compromises and his excuses have gotten them. The camp is in chaos, and Moses has to do something. And so look at the final act of cleansing. It says this in verse 25. Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control, much to the amusement of their enemies. So he stood, Moses goes over, he stands at the entrance of the camp, and he shouts, all of you who are on the Lord's side, come here and join me. And all the Levites gathered around him. Now, what happens here is Moses calls the people together, and he, needs, he knows he needs to put an end to this chaos. Peace is only going to come by the sword. So here's what he says. He, he essentially tells the people that come to him, go get your swords, right? And then 
He says, I need you to go throughout the camp, and I need you, need you to kill all the idolaters, your brother, your neighbor, everyone who won't repent. Go kill them. And that's what happens. It says 3,000 people were killed. And this section ends by Moses stating that those who did this were blessed. And you say, what? <laughs> what are we supposed to do with this? Merry Christmas? I... See, some of you are saying, this is in the Bible, right? You've got to read your Bibles, right? God commanded this. I don't know about this God. But there's something important to see here. Sin is serious, and sin leads to death. And more than that, idolatry is a sin that will lead to eternal death because the people were not worshiping the one true God. And most commentators would say that the people were killed, the people who were killed were the people who did not repent of their sin. They didn't, they had rejected God, they had rejected his ways, and this was judgment. And the only way to restore peace in the camp was through the sword. Now this was an action for a moment in the Old Testament. It's not a binding thing for the New Testament, <laughs> by God's grace. But it happened. The lesson is clear, though. You have to choose a side. Because this is the call of Exodus 32. Whose side are you on? The Lord or the golden calf? Sin is serious. It must be punished. Sin leads to death, which is why we need to call people to repentance. Otherwise, there's no peace. And here's the truth about our, our day and age. Being on the Lord's side may not be popular, but it is right. We live in a world where people think that some of the commands in the Bible, the moral commands, are immoral. We don't need people to pick up the sword, but we do need people to have courage. Courage to stand against the mob, which Aaron could not do. Courage to wait, which everybody says you shouldn't. When we don't wait well, we start to compromise. And Advent, the Christmas season, is about waiting for a Savior who will come he came once, and he will come back to make all things right. All the false gods will one day be under his feet. Amen. And so to that end, there's one more thing we can't miss about Exodus 32. There's some interesting parts in the scene, yes, but it does show that we need a mediator. Look at what Moses does for the people in verse 30. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you've committed a terrible sin, but I will go back to the Lord on the mountain and perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sins. And so Moses goes back to the mountain. He seeks forgiveness. You know, the reason we don't have peace in our world today is because we've lost the ability to forgive. All we want to do is shame and cancel. But Moses shows a different way. Moses offers himself to God. He says, if only you will forgive them, Lord, erase my name, take me. But then God responds to Moses and look at what God says. God says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Because sin must be punished. And in order for God to be truly just, in order for there to be total peace, atonement must be made. Peace comes through the sword. And friends, that's why we need Christmas. That is why the message of Christmas is one of ultimate true Peace, because someone did come to earth who was willing to be blotted out for us, who was willing to go under the sword for us, and he had the power to forgive. And so as the worship team comes back on the stage for one final song, I just want to remind you that God himself came as a baby, 
And one day he would grow up and he would go to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus would go under the sword for our forgiveness, for our sin, for all the things that we have done. There is only one way that true peace can come and happen between us and God. That is when true peace, true peace comes when the sword falls on Jesus on the cross for you and for me. Do you want peace? Fall at his feet. Worship him, not some golden calf. Confess your sins because he has the power to forgive, to wash you clean, and to end your war with God. He's the prince of peace. Jesus was blotted out for us so we could experience God's presence. Through him, we have a victory worth celebrating, which is why John writes in Revelation 3.5, all who are victorious will be clothed in white, I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Because Exodus 32 is not the end of the story. The true gift that was offered at Christmas was peace and forgiveness, salvation. As we wait for the Messiah, know he's worth the wait. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and your sacrifice. And Lord, we confess we are impatient people. We don't wait well. Would you work on our hearts today, Lord? Would you help us to surrender to you, to love you more, to put aside the golden calves in our lives so that we would see you more clearly and worship you more fully? We confess our sins before you, Lord. We fall at your feet and we worship you because you are a God who is merciful and who is loving and who sent his son to make peace with us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.